Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Wisdom and Crick Fizz's podcast series, The Greatest T20. In our first episode, we decided that Chris Gale is the greatest batsman the format has seen. In the second, we picked Mumbai Indians as T20's greatest ever team. And today we're here to pick the greatest fast bowler in the history of T20 cricket. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today to decide that is Crickbiz analyst Freddie Wilde and one of the very fastest bowlers on the planet right now, Tamal Mills. Well, let's get straight into it. Tamal, you've played in leagues in England, Australia, New Zealand, Bangladesh, Pakistan and India in recent years. And you became one of the youngest T20 specialists in the world, specifically from England. And that was enforced because of your back condition. When you first broke into the game, did you ever think you'd be a T20 specialist? Um, no, not at all. My, my entry into the game, my, you know, all of my kind of early opportunities in cricket were in, were in four-day cricket. In fact, one of the, one of the main reasons I, I left Essex and moved to Sussex was I, I didn't feel I was getting enough opportunities in, in 2020 cricket in particular. Um, it was a, an area of the game I actually found easier. I think my skill set was better suited to, um, to white ball cricket. Uh, I always struggled a bit in red ball cricket for that consistency and to find that balance between pace, accuracy, swing. Um, whereas in T20 cricket, I, just, I found myself a little bit more naturally um, you know, suited for, for that. So, um, But no, to go back and answer your question, I... You know, I grew up and I played a lot of championship cricket when I was younger and that was really kind of where I made a name for myself. So I didn't envisage, obviously, my life and my career going, going how it did. But um, just, just, I knew from a, a quite an early age that, that, that 40 over cricket at the time and, and T20 cricket was um, maybe where my, my, kind of, my skill set was, was, was best, uh, best fitted. Shortly after you became a T20 specialist, you really shot into the limelight. In 2016, you, you had that famous over that was doing the rounds on Twitter recently, Chris Gale, <laughs> dealing with a 93-mile-per-hour Yorker in the blast. Is that well, if, you, if, you, if you follow Twitter, you think, I've never, I haven't taken a wicket since then. That's, that's the only <laughs> thing that ever, um, ever seems to show up. And that's, what, four, four years ago now, and that's the only wicket I've, I've taken, apparently. <laughs> it's, it's not a bad scout to have, though. Not a bad scout to have. Was, was that the moment that everything changed for you? That kind of, you know, you got the England call-up not too long afterwards, IPL contract not too long afterwards as well. Yeah, look, hundred. I can't deny that it was. You know, it was probably the biggest point in my career, and I'm not. I'm not blind to the fact that if that game wasn't on Sky and Nick Knight didn't do that kind of great bit of commentary to go along with it, that made a you know kind of a clip that went viral. Um, things could have been very different. That's that's the um, kind of the age that we live in, obviously, with social media being so powerful. Um, and look, it's one of the one of the real downsides of, of playing in England and, and playing in the Blast is that some really special performances go unnoticed because they're not, you know, they're not on TV. So um, look, I'm, I'm not blind to the fact that, that I was very lucky in that regard. Um, 
it's also probably not a coincidence. You ask, you know, any of my teammates, I'll, I'll probably be bowling a little bit quicker when the cameras are on. I've always um, been a bit of a show pony in, in that regard. Um, but it, it was a bit of a combination of, uh, you know, a lot of hard work. The ECB took me away all that, that previous winter to help me. Because was, this, was, this was my first year of just playing T20 cricket. I had the reoccurrence of my back problem at the start of the previous summer and I kind of muddled through with, the, with injuries and then, that winter, the ECB took me away on, on various different camps with Lions tours. I went away with England under-19s on a training camp. Even though I was obviously older than that, but they wanted to, to get me away out to South Africa to do some training. And then I came back to England ready for that summer. And um, that was the first kind of proper game of the summer. I think after we played a game at Bristol a few days before, it got rained off. And then, um, so by then, that second game of the year, I was... I was I was pretty pumped up and I was um I was I was screaming in down that hill so um yeah it was it was obviously a huge well it was you know the biggest kind of turning point in my career it really got me on the map and then you know I followed it up with with kind of a really good 12 months after that yeah I mean you you got that England call up you did really well in your four games as well uh, I remember your your debut at Sri Lanka conceding just 22 uh, and then there was that amazing one white ball series that England and India had in India where I think England won the ODI series and lost the T20 series I think England basically got boomerang uh, into, into the game. He was amazing. Um, but I think Freddie and I were talking about this in the build-up to the show. I think a lot of people, myself included, are quite surprised you've not played for England since and, and you aren't a part of the, the big training group this summer. Have you had much communication with selectors about how far off you are from England's T20 fans? Because a lot of the focus has been for a long time on the 50 over stuff. Uh, yeah, look, no, in answer to your question, no, I've not had any contact from England for a while. Um, I've not been able to stay fit really since since that that year where I, you know, I had a really good series in India and then went on to the IPL. And since then, I've I've had injuries of pretty much consecutive summers after that in England. I've I've just not even been available for selection at the time that T Twenty series had rolled out. So um, look, I've, I've obviously got no grievances there. Um, I thought last summer I was probably but only. Um, I was probably bowling as quickly and as, as well as I had done for Sussex, but then unfortunately I got a stress fracture and that knocked me out for the rest of the year. Um, so I got myself fit and it, it, I had a, you know, I, I do harbour ambitions of playing for England again. That's what I want to be doing. I said, I've not done it for such a long time now. Um, and looking back now, when I was sat in January, kind of looking forward to the rest of this year, I had a, in theory, a really nice year planned out of the PSL in, in February and March. And then I'd come home, have a bit of time off into the blast with Sussex, which we obviously should be playing now, onto the 100. And then look, that's, that's, that's a brilliant kind of few months in terms of a shop window to try and get in that T20 World Cup squad for you know, October, November. So all that's obviously been changed now. Nothing I can do about that. I just want to, I've just got to stay fit. And you know, I always back myself that if I'm fit and I'm on the park, I'm, I'm in, you know, there or thereabouts for selection. I feel I'm good enough to play for England still. I mean, I'm still only 27, so I've got, Got a few more years left in me, I hope. And um, yeah, but until we can get back playing on the park, there's nothing we can do there. And I'm just just looking forward to, to getting back out there for Sussex soon. Yeah, Tim, I should probably jump in here. I've got some numbers that are going to embarrass you, but um, <laughs> I'll pick you up. But you know, you talk, you talk about when you are on the park, um, you think you're good enough to, to get in the side. And then the numbers certainly back that up. I mean, we've just got a stat here, which is best step over the economy rate since the last World Cup. Um, amongst guys to have bowled a, a decent number of balls and no one in the world is better than you. You've got an economy rate of 7.35. Um, just guys who you're ahead of, Rashid Khan, Sinon Narayan, Wahab Riaz, Gaspit Brimra, 
Mr. Fazirahman, Jofra Archer. Um, there's some good names to be ahead of. Um, yeah, I think we'll, we'll talk about uh, particularly death bowling is something that, you know, you really stand out at. at um, and yeah, it's, the numbers concur. If you're out on the park, then you're mixing with the very best. Yeah, no, it's nice to hear. I, I saw that tweet <laughs> flying around. My agent sent it to me, so I've made sure that he um, he got got a copy of that and sends it to to every coach before every every draft I uh, end up in, in in the coming months. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, I I enjoy death bowling. It's something I've been good at. I, I probably go about it a different way to a lot of a lot of people. Um, I'm sure look, you guys at Crick will have all the all the details. A lot of guys will think, okay, I've got to go York is here. I've got to. You know, a lot of guys will have different ways of going about it. Whereas I, I tend to, I tend to just try and bowl fast and kind of back of the length really. And guys struggle to struggle to hit it more often than not, especially when you can mix it up with um, you know, a change of pace and and then change up with with your line and your length as well. So, um, like I, I really enjoy death bowling. I think as an out and out bowler, obviously I'm not offering anything to the team with a bat and and, and, and almost not as much in the field. So I, I've got to, um, I've got, I've got to really step up in those times. You know, I've got to bowl power play and death overs. I don't want to be one of those guys that just bowls in the middle overs, gets those easy kind of seven through 12 overs in. Um, that's not, unless there's a big partnership going, that's not, that's not why I'm in the side. So um, yeah, look, you got, you got to try and uh, at the death, just, just give it a good crack and, and, and see how you go. And, and it's important to just always know that there's always going to be another game and then always another opportunity to, to, um, to go well so uh, yeah look, those numbers obviously it's, it is nice to see your, you know your name pop up on these lists and especially with the with the other names that are out there but as I said earlier already and, and as we touched upon it's no use if, if you're not fit and not on the park so that's my pretty much my, my sole ambition for kind of my career moving forward Do you, do you have set plans different batsmen? I mean what, what's the key? You know I'm not I'm not a big one for plans I, I I try my best to focus on myself um I, I rightly or wrongly I'll I'll back myself to to outplay the batter on any given day uh look, I'm not a big one for the team meetings I think I heard Harry Gurney say in a podcast as well recently he's quite the same where I you know I can sit in a team meeting and it's it's not going to change I can I you know, it's not going to change how I'm going to go about my business come the match a few hours later unless there's something glaring unless it unless there's a stat or or anything that says, look, this batsman hits every ball you bowl here for six, then you know, I'm probably going to shy away from that. Or the opposite, okay, this batsman cannot hit the ball if you bowl it there, or they get out 90% of the time if you bowl here. So, but those those occasions are very rare. Once once you're out in the middle, you've got to just back yourself, and you've got to be so confident in what you It's such a high-pressure environment. You need to give yourself the best chance of executing, and for everybody, that'll be different. So, you know, I'm not going to go out there and, and try and nail a leg stump Yorker just because that's what the stats say or that's what my captain's trying to tell me. If I don't feel like I'm confident, I'm going to execute it. I've, you've got to go out there and you've got to execute. Uh, and that's the challenge sometimes playing in these leagues all around the world. You're playing with ca- some captains are a lot more emotional than others out on the field trying to tell you what to do. You know, I've had a few run-ins, especially out in the PSL with a few captains that are trying to, to scream at you and tell you what to bowl and tell you you're not bowling well enough and you got to be you got to be strong-minded to to tell them that you kind of you know what you're doing and there's a reason you've been picked and there's a reason you've got to where you are. So um, yeah, look, I I tend to have a pretty pretty similar game plan no matter where I'm playing. There's been a few times where where you change it up and if you hit an, it's, it's definitely a difference. If you hit an early Yorker, 
you then you feel a bit more confident going to them to continue as opposed to having to come into them on the back of the hit and hit for six. So, um, yeah, I, I try and I try and stay as level and as, as similar in my approach as possible. But you talk, you talk there about maybe not having quite such a conventional approach at the deck in terms of maybe going a bit more back of a length. Why do you do that of interest? Because um, the numbers quite often suggest more bowlers should do that. I mean, Yorkers are very high-risk deliveries. Um, if you miss it by a fraction, as I'm sure you know, that you can be punished. Whereas you've, you've sometimes got a bit more margin for error when you bowl back of a length. Is that something that you've always done? Or, how, or and why did you adopt that when you did, I guess? Yeah, look, I think, again, it comes down to execution and confidence. So it's like, okay, you're, under the, you're in a high-pressure environment. Imagine 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people there minimal runs on the board you know it's a pride pressure environment you need to be able to execute and for me the ball that I know I can execute more often than not is left arm around the wicket back of the length going into the you know box thigh pad that's and and for me ask any batsman that's a hard ball to hit for a boundary especially if you're able to bowl at you know 90 miles an hour upwards 140 40k whoever is you know whoever's listening to this um that, that that's a that's a difficult ball to hit you know it might not, might not be a glamorous Yorker that's going to tear, tear out middle stump but if that ball goes for a dot or one or a two that's that's a win in, in T20 cricket at the death and then <clears throat> you're then forcing the batsman to try and change their position in the crease something they may not be comfortable with to try and make it into a different length um, and then you know with the slower balls as well bowl them into the wicket and try and get them to hit you know, hit to my men. I'll have my I'll, again. You'll rarely see me change the field too much because I'd like to have a field where I where I feel comfortable bowling a few different balls. But that'll all be based upon that kind of stock ball of the the back of the length pace on ball angling into the the right hander or obviously left hander. I'll come over the wicket and angle it into their their box and try and t- try and t- it's about taking their arm swing away. That's that's the main thing because if that ball's fast and into their you know into their box, they can't get a a real extension of the hands to try and um, and hit you for six. So that's that's my main thought process. I know it's pretty basic. No, it's, in- it's interesting because not many people do it. Um, <laughs> well, not many people do it better uh, with an economy <laughs> rate like that. Right, yeah. Maybe more people should follow that that method. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, Freddie, you mentioned some of the other bo- other pace bowlers who excelled at the death in the last four years. But over the course of the format's history, who are who are some of the other guys who have been consistently? Excellent. In the last five overs. Well, I guess we're getting into our, our topic of discussion today, which is um, you know, who, who's the greatest fast bowler, and, and there are some, some of the players that um, we're going to talk about today stand out, particularly good death bowlers. Um, I mean, really, if you're going to put yourself in the frame as the greatest fast bowler in T20, you've got to be able to operate at the death, because quite often, even before the death overs, you can sort of have to adapt to death bowling, if you like, in high scoring matches. It's essentially trying to avoid being hit for six um, and who's good at doing it. And, um, you know, some of these names, the guys we'll talk about today, you like Malinga, who's probably, you know, one of the standout um, fast bowlers. Um, Dale Staines, another one. Uh, and then Wahab Riaz, actually, is someone who often sneaks under the radar. He's received a lot. He gets a lot of stick, uh, I think, from Pakistani fans uh, for various reasons. But um, Wahab, again, is, is another left arm, left armer like Timal, um, who over a long period of time, has been excellent in that period of the game. Um, Amir as well, uh, Stark. These guys are all left armers, which is something that you know we'll probably touch on. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's a it's a key part of the game because as batsmen become more aggressive and more effective at clearing the ropes, the death overs is almost getting bigger. Yeah, and I guess what's quite interesting with this is because bowlers, obviously, the person who we end up picking is probably going to be excellent throughout 
the innings. But bowlers bowl at different times in the innings and using traditional metrics such as averages, strike rates and economy rates, they're, they're almost redundant in a way. Is, is there a way of assessing how effective bowlers are over the course of a T20 game? Well, yeah, I mean, strike rate, economy rate and average are not necessarily completely redundant. I think basically it's about adapting different things to different phases. So quite often, well, I mean, at Cricketers, we've got a measure which tries to bring it all together called match impact, which I might touch on in a minute. But generally in the power play, what you're interested in most of the time is, is can you take wickets? Uh, which are particularly valuable early on in the innings and they decrease in value um, as you get through the innings. So, you know, if you're looking for the best power play bowlers, quite often a good measure is just simply you know, strike rate in that phase. So it's about adapting to different phases. And as you move through the innings, economy rate becomes more important. And, um, you know, it, it's, very, it's very important to adjust for phase. I remember Jade Dernbach was someone who was one of the first sort of specialist death bowlers who picked for England to basically bowl at the death. I mean, he's a similar bowler to Tim Al with quite a lot of tricks. Um, he was ahead of his time in that respect. But Dernbach's economy rate, just raw economy rate was always really bad compared to everybody else's, but that's because he bowled in the death overs. So it's very important to, to look specifically at phases, and that's why um, just the, you know the stats that we quoted to, to, to Tim Allen at the top of the show were just about death overs, um, because you know there's no use comparing somebody bowls in that period to somebody bowls earlier in the inning. Um, but yeah, as I said, cricketers have got a measure called match impact, which tries to sort of um, compress all of that down into one number. Um, and, and the guys that we'll speak about today, some of them have already mentioned, all come out really well by that, uh, by that measure, essentially. Yes, someone I'm really fascinated by is, is Mitchell Stark in this conversation, just because he just doesn't play T20 cricket that much these days. I mean, like, Australia managed him very well. In, the, in 2019, he only played 10 ODR games, and they were all in the World Cup. Um, and in T20 cricket, he's played just 11 T20 since his amazing IPL in 2015, which is now five years ago. Um, Tamar, is, is Stark somebody you've looked up to as like a left-arm rapid bowler who's done it at the very, very highest level? I always keep an eye out for other left-armers. I think you know, there is definitely a little, little union of us. Um, you always want, you know, I'd always want a left-armer to do better than a right-armer in, in, in another game for, for some reason. But um, yeah, you're right, Stark, he's... You know, he's one of the best bowlers in the world, all forms. Um, so Cricket Australia are very, very uh, careful of how they operate their, their bowlers. They manage them, they scan them regularly just to make sure. I remember playing with, with Billy Stanlake in, in, when I was at the IPL obviously a few years ago. And I remember Billy had like a, the slightest niggle and Cricket Australia were, were all over him to try and, try and get him home. So they do protect them uh, very much. But Starks... Um, yeah, look, he's he's an X-factor bowler, isn't he? Swings that new ball at 90 miles an hour plus, and then he bowls, as everybody knows, great Yorkers at the end. So, just as you stereotypes, if you if you're going to build a T20 bowler, but you're only given maybe two attributes, you'd you'd take that swinging the new ball and and executing Yorkers at the end. They're probably the the two that you'd pick. So to have both of them at the pace that he can bowl at is obviously a um, much coveted asset. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, as you make a good point, though, I mean, the, the key thing with Stark is that I think, um, you know, his, his raw materials, as Samal said, that are fantastic. Um, why, I suppose, it might be a bit more difficult to argue his case in, in this particular debate is just that volume aspect. Um, when he does play, I've got no doubt that Stark is going to be brilliant. You know, when the World Cup, for example, is coming up, I'm sure he'll be fantastic. When he does um, appear in the IPL, he's always brilliant. Um, he can just turn it on. He's one of you know he's one of the world's best bowlers. But when we're talking about um, the greatest of all time, I think 
Um, that, that there's a, st a strong case to be made that he's not played quite enough T20 cricket in the last few years to, to really maybe be in that discussion. I think he's played 11 T20s since, since 2015, um, which yeah, is not many at all. Um, that's not to say he's not fantastic, but he hasn't quite got the body of work behind him that maybe someone like Malinga has, who I think has probably got a, base, a stronger claim. On Stark, how does he compare pace-wise to other bowlers on the Quickness database? Yeah, well, he's right up there. He's right up there. I mean, uh, Sean Tate and Sher Bakhtar are way out in front in terms of um, average speed and, and max speed. They sort of were capable of, of touching speeds that nowadays no one else can really quite get near. They're almost sort of super freaks in that respect. Um, but he's then in that next, he starts then in that next pack of guys. Um, Billy Stanlake, actually, someone Tim Al just mentioned also, is, is in and around that Nassim Shah, who um, Tim Al will have played with um, at Quetta in the most recent PSL. Um, and then guys like Lockie Ferguson, then, and then and then Tamal himself. That's sort of um, the next bracket, really, of quick bowlers. Um, and uh, Sean Tate are way out in front of sort of the fastest um, we've got on record. Um, but yeah, then then Stark, who, who's going to you know be operating in and around 90 miles an hour uh, regularly. Um, that, that's pretty quick. And as Tamal said, combining that with swing up front. Very aggressive lengths as well. He looks for wickets, which, you know, as I said, bowling in the power play, one of the key things is, um, is, is taking wickets. That strike rate, as I said, is a key measure. And what Stark does is he's, he's attacking. He puts the ball up there and gives it a chance to swing. Um, and then, at, yeah, at the, de at the death comes back with Yorkers. So he's got a fantastic all-round package. You gave me a list of, of players who, bowlers who are excellent throughout, throughout the innings, basically, up the front, in the middle and at the end. And there are a couple of names that I was a little bit surprised by. Uh, Dale Stain did surprise me a little bit because other than maybe Bumrah, he's the only person we're mentioning that's an elite test bowler as well as a T20 bowler. Um, Tamar, how, how transferable do you think the skills are from Red Bull cricket? Uh, yeah, look, those, those are your kind of unicorns, aren't they? Those are your guys. That it's a very small bracket of players at the top of that list. Dale Stain, as you say, Jasper Bumrah. Uh, you could probably argue Mitchell Stark, um, Joffre Archer, potentially, you know, in, in a couple of years' time, where you genuinely, you know, can walk into any Test or T20 side. Um, I think the, the great thing about Stain is that it's that swing, isn't it, with the either the red or the or the white cookable ball. Um, that late swing, you know, it's, it's a classical action. Isn't it? He was obviously very successful in the IPL for a number of years, uh, bowling good pace swinging the ball around and then <clears throat> able to, to change it up and, um, and mix it up at the death and bowl Yorkers as well. But I think it's, it's swing the big thing. If, if you're a great test bowler and you can swing the ball, if, if you can bring that into your T20 game, even if you're not as great at the death, you can bowl three out of the six overs in the power play potentially and, and look for wickets that way. So um, it's, yeah, it's definitely that swing, late swing if possible. We know that the white cookable ball swings, you know, the least of all, all cricket balls. Um, so it is tough. And if you are able to get a decent amount of movement with them, you'll, you'll give yourself half a chance of being successful. You make a good point there, just in terms of um, swing bowlers being able to operate in the power play. And I think that's right. A lot of, a lot of Red Bull bowlers who are effective um, can transfer into T20 and bowl well in, in the, first, you know, the first period of innings, as where, where the ball is doing a little bit and where maybe that classical line and length is effective. And what, is, what Stain has managed to do is, because he has that pace, and I suppose that ability to find the Yorker, that he can actually also bowl, you know, two or three up front and then one or two back at the back end. And that's the thing that, as you said, they are unicorns. They're particularly rare because you've got to have, um, not only have you got to be able to swing the ball, but you've got to be able to return at the back end with, with high pace and with Yorkers. And very few people can combine those two, which is why 
I think you'll find there are very few bowlers who, as we said, operate in both red or in test cricket and T20 cricket. Straddling that slide is very difficult. You're right, Joff, for someone who might begin to do it in years to come. Shaheen Shah Afridi, someone we might talk about a little bit later on as a sort of coming star, is someone who's got the raw materials. Again, it's just I think pace is, is so important because if you if you if you miss your Yorker at the back end at, at a lower pace, say you're Vernon Philander, the, the the margin for error is so much smaller and it's so much more difficult I think to survive. So it's just yeah that, that high pace is so essential to being able to you know succeed across all three phases. Another person I was a little bit surprised by how well he's done across all three phases of the game is Mo Amir. No, yeah, well, again, Amir is someone who well, is actually used to talk about you know, trying, trying to be effective in red and white ball. Amir's obviously retired from test cricket, and I don't think that's necessarily because he wasn't particularly good at it, but he's just chosen to focus more so on white ball. Um, and I think he'll be a better white ball bowler for it. Um, he isn't quite as quick as, as, as Stark and Stain, um, but he's very, very accurate. And I think that left arm angle, I mean, a number of these guys um, are left armers. And Timao, it'd be interesting to, to pick your brains a bit about what that gives you um, as, as a benefit and maybe it's, is, it, is it especially to right-handers that ability to sort of go across is that is that something that's a benefit for you at the death? Uh, it is I often bowl around the wicket though to try and make the angle bigger the other way um, yeah. to bring it that, so to come from what would be very wide of the crease uh, mm. around the wicket to angle that ball into them you know into that kind of middle and leg stump to try and force that that also makes them forces them to hit one way because it's Obviously hard to get to go against the angle to hit the ball on the offside then, so then I can pack the yeah. ball on the leg side. Um, but yeah, left arm is it's just basics, isn't it? If you imagine when you're a kid growing up, playing cricket on the bowling machine, playing junior cricket, getting into adult cricket, what probably 75, 80% of the, the bowlers, it will, be, it will just be right arm over. And the bowling machine will be set up, it will be set up right arm over. Most of the bowlers you're facing the net, right arm over. Your dad giving you throw downs, he's probably stood from right arm over. So just... You're trained as you grow up. You're facing more right arm over. You know your triggers. You know your balance. You know where the ball's coming from. So it's just that it's just just different, isn't it? You know you haven't faced as many balls coming from a left armer just due to there being a lack of left arm bowlers in the world for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, it definitely plays a part. I don't think it's it's obviously, it's obviously not a coincidence why you often see a lot of success being um, coming from left arm quick bowlers and every team wanting to have a left-arm quick bowler in their side. Uh, you obviously, you guys will have the mountains of data to, to, to back that up, I assume. But, um, but yeah, like you guys like Wahab Riaz and Mohamed Amir, like I've played a lot in the PSL with, with both of those guys. I've been teammates. You know, Wahab especially, he's just consistently, you know, the top wicket taker pretty much every, every year. Um, the PSL is slightly slanted towards bowlers. The, the domestic batting isn't anywhere near as strong as what the domestic bowling is. Um, so you, you, you do have to kind of take that into consideration sometimes but you know those two guys they are and, and Hassan Ali probably and Mohamed Sami they're probably the real um, standout bowlers from, from the PSL and, and just how consistent they are Yeah and I mean, Amir and Wahab are interesting because Amir I think is that sort of classical as Yaz said you'd think he's most well suited to the power play he bowls he swings the ball at decent pace he bowls attacking lengths he pitches it up he's not afraid to, to, to look for wickets early on um, he is effective as well at the death. And then Wahab, I think, is a bit more of a sort of back-end bowler. Often Wahab won't even bowl in the first six. Um, and he does. he's a bit more similar to you sometimes in respect to the lengths he bowls. He looks to sort of back of a length quite often. He's got some slur balls. He's got good pace too. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, Wahab is, 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 is I mentioned, I'm, I'm not quite sure why it is, but he gets a lot of stick amongst Pakistanis. Um, he's sort of in and out of the side. His international career, in some respects, almost become a bit of a joke. But his numbers are absolutely phenomenal. And he's a set, he, I think he is the best death bowler historically. We're talking about um, across the last four years. And Timal was at the top of that list. But historically, no one is better than Wahab um, in that period of the game. He is you know, a master at saving runs when the batsmen are, are, are hissing out towards the back end. And, and that's a skill not to be sniffed at. Again, that ball, that, that, ball, that Peshawar's army ball does tend to, to move a little <laughs> bit towards, towards the back end. I've been the benefactor of that as well. But um, if, you, if, you watch, if you watch a season of PSL, you will notice a little bit of reverse swing come, come that back end for Wahab. <laughs> yeah, that is that does seem to cross up. I remember Dan Christian um, having a pop a few a few years back around that. Um, but yeah, I mean he's combining movement, however achieved, um, with high pace and, and, and accuracy. So that's it's a, it's a lethal combination. Yeah, wow, it's really interesting. I think I think people struggle to separate T Twenty cricket and fifty over cricket in their heads. So I remember uh, Phil Walker saying last year during the World Cup that Wahab Riaz is born to take three for 80 in an ODI. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's, that's not particularly desirable in 50 over cricket. But, you know, if somebody's, somebody's taking three wickets in a spell and going at eight and over in T20, that's fantastic. So, Mark, I mentioned it at the top. I remember your, your England debut. And I remember there's all this hype about this bowl who bowls upward of 90 miles per hour. And then you, you kind of tease us with all the slow balls you bowled. Um, how, how, how essential is it, do you think, for fast bowlers to have an array of slow balls and cutters these days? Oh, it's, you know, it's paramount. You can't, if you haven't, you're not going to last very long. Batters are, are too good. The pitches are often too flat. And you can't just get away with bowling one pace. You need to have you know, different variations of slower balls as well. Different variations on your pace on balls. Um, as I said, batsmen are... Are so good at adapting and, and picking up guys and there's so much data out there as well obviously Freddie will know everything about that you know you sit in all these team meetings and the analysts can literally just tell you what a bowl is going to bowl essentially you know they okay he's in the death he's probably going to bowl four out of his 12, 12 balls at the death are probably going to be back of the hand three of them might be an off cutter and four might be pace on or you know whatever um, so you, you have to have variation you have to have a lot of it you have to um, you have to execute ultimately that's, that's what it comes down to as a bowler the batsman can pick what they can predict what you're going to do they can um, pick what you're going to bowl but, but if you still if you execute it how you want to execute it you've still got the best chance of, in, in my opinion of coming out on top There's the old adage you know, if you nail a Yorker it's the best ball in the game it's, it's, it's true isn't it um, obviously you get the odd edge and obviously you might be able to scoop it over your head or whatever that, but that's the highest highest risk shot possible um, so if you execute as a bowler, and that goes back to what I said at the start, if you're confident enough in what you're going to execute, then um, then you give yourself a chance. So it comes down to practice, and you know it comes down to you know, to balls for for want of a better expression. Once you're out there in the middle, of that high high pressure environment, how, you know have you got the stones to to go out there and be a hero and, and execute and and to to hopefully walk off the field as a winner. Um, what's the relationship like between analysts and fast bowlers? You know, you, you can bowl 90 miles per hour, then the laptop comes in telling you you need to mix up your length more. 
what, 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 what's that relationship like? Oh, look, it, it, to be fair, it's, ne- it's never usually the analysts. The analysts, from my experience, from playing all around the world, they're very, you know, just very nice guys. They'll give you what you want. They'll do, you know, they'll, they'll just do their jobs. It's more the, the bowling coaches, you know, form, or, you know, I won't name names, but, you know, four ex-players that want to tell you how they did it back, you know, back in their day, or what, what, what you should be doing, what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong. Um, but no, it does with analysts. They're, they're there for you, aren't they? In my opinion, they're, they're there as players to um, say, oh, can you give me this information on this player? Or can you give me this information on myself? You know, I, I did that during the, the T10 we were playing and we got, I don't know why we got given stat packs for T10. That's pretty, it's pretty pointless in, in my opinion. Uh, but we had these, we had these meetings and we were having, given stats information before this T10 game. Um, but afterwards, I said, oh, can you prepare a, a stat pack on me if I was on, on the opposition so I can see what my trends are, what, um, you know, what I do at the death, you know, what my record, you know, my record is better to left-handers, to right-handers, all, all those type of things. That's, it's good learning for yourself. I'd encourage all, all bowlers to do that when you have the analysts there for you. Obviously, we all have them at county level. And if, if we're playing overseas, get a different set of eyes um, to do that. So, and I actually, you know, I made some changes and, on, on the back of that, I know last year for Sussex, I bowled less slower balls and, and stuck to bowling more pace on because guys were starting to set up for my slower ball. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's what you make of it. It's, what, it's how you use it. Every team's different. But pretty much no matter where you are, whatever competition you're playing around the world, there'll be a, a you know a high-level analyst there with, with all the information that you need. Maybe not as high-level as Crickbiz. We're not all that lucky yet. The budgets, budgets, <laughs> bud, budgets for all teams haven't quite... Uh, not all teams have 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 quick viz budgets yet, but um, there'll be there'll be in the, the information will be out there if you need it. Good answer, mate. Yeah, I mean, just just off the back of that, I mean, like I think a lot of it's down to knowing the player and, and knowing what they like and, and knowing how they like to receive their information. Some players don't like anything. Some players like bits and bobs. Sometimes it'll be passed through the bowling coach. Um, sometimes you know I might not have a conversation at all with certain players. Um, around things, but I still will pass information to them. But it's through coaches, and you know, in, in a way, sometimes they might prefer that rather than being told, um, you know, by by someone like myself what to do. Um, <laughs> it, you know, they're they're, I, I, they're receiving advice from a coach, and and it's never a case. It's never a one way track either. I mean, um, you know, the analysts at the time, you know, we've got a lot of information, but we've got we're far from having all the answers. Um, you know, the, the bowlers are the guys who are the professional players at the end of the day. Um, and it's about conversation and about trying to work out what works for, for each person. Yeah, and I think my, I, my, my opinion on analysts, and I hope well, Freddie might disagree, I don't know. But um, I, I think their best use, their most important um, roles is, is that pre-draft and draft day, and draft day, building the yeah. team. Because... Essentially, once you once you're in a tournament, you've got your players you've, who have a certain skill set in a certain condition. You're all there. You know, as as I've said a few times on on this pod, you know, as a bowler, you need to go out there and be confident to execute what you want to execute. If a team has picked you to do a job that you're not good at doing, then that's the team's fault, in my opinion. I know the team don't get blamed for it. The player the player does, and the player gets dropped, and the player gets casted off. But I think that you know, it's it's, it's, it's baffling sometimes the the way some teams pick i know you have owners influence things like that but some of the squads that get assembled that clearly have no balance or have players that aren't suited to playing in that country that condition or or coming into the tournament on a run of bad form or haven't played for x amount of time 
um, or the amount of players that get picked that aren't even available for the tournament. Like <laughs> these are these are huge basic things, and that's with me. If I was a coach of a team or uh, you know running a draft or whatever, I'd be all over my analysts to, to to build the team. And then once you're actually in the tournament, you just want to play cricket, and then you 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 just back yourself that you've picked the the right group of players and you have the right coaching staff to go out there and, and to execute. That's 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 my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, so so much of these tournaments are won, you know, in the auction room or at the draft table. And I think a massive part of that, you know, you sort of touched on it there, and, and it's very relevant to what we're talking about here, is building a bowling attack to succeed in the different phases of the game. As we said, there are there are very distinct phases, and they require very different skills of, of, of bowlers. Um, and I think, you know, if you can build an attack whereby, you know, you've got someone who can operate, who's a power play specialist, for example, someone who's a death over specialist, and then a quick maybe who can operate through all three phases, you're sort of giving yourself a balance there um, of, of different skills rather than, for example, signing three death bowlers and then asking one of those death bowlers to operate in the power play. Um, you know, you, that, that bowler is probably going to struggle to fulfill that role because it's not matching up with his skill set. Um, so, no, you're completely right. Building, that, building the squad is, is very important, I think, especially building that bowling attack because the three phases of the game are so different. Yeah, tomorrow you, you mentioned it earlier. How how much kind of do you, how much kind of adaptation do you need to do as a bowler once you kind of been seen on the circuit for a couple of years? I don't know who the best examples for this would be. Maybe Mustafizur in the IPL of somebody who had a brilliant first couple of seasons, but then as batsmen got more used to them, found them slightly harder to face. Is that something you're quite conscious of as a bowler that you you've got to always be changing up? Yeah, look, hundred percent. And unfortunately, you you have to normally go through a, a bad run of form to realise that. It's very hard to identify that ahead of the curve because often you'll then be changing whilst things are still going well. And obviously when, when you're bowling well and you're doing something... Because obviously when, when you're bowling well, you, more often than not, you, you're doing the same thing over and over again. And you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it, you know, as, as they say. So for you to then say, OK, maybe guys are getting on to me here. I'll change what I'm going to do. That's not going to look good, is it? If you're changing what's been successful, so you often have to go through a bad run of form, get hit around for a bit, and then say, "Okay, why have I done this?" So that's something that I definitely myself have gone through. Um, I was probably a bit stubborn and, and stuck to my own way a little bit, um, and, and and was a little bit slow to to maybe move away. But then, as I said last year for Sussex, you know, I spoke to to our analyst Luke and um, Captain Luke Wright, and. You know, I definitely bowled more pace on and, and I, I had a lot more success with it. I attacked the stumps a bit more towards the death with pace on, with the odd slower ball, as opposed to maybe bowling four out of my six ball slower balls as, as, as maybe I got into a habit of habit of doing. I'd maybe change it to four pace on and, and two slower balls. Um, so you have, you have to adapt. You have to, um, you have to be willing to, to learn and you have to find that balance between you know, sticking to your guns and, and also then not, not be too stubborn and, and not being able to to be flexible as well, and, and that comes to your skill set as well. You need to have a skill set skill set that's broad enough to be flexible. If 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 you can only do one or two things, then you can't be flexible, can you? Because you've got nowhere else to go. So that comes down to practice as well. I think you know, this sort of taps into a really key part of what we're talking about today in terms of trying to work out the greatest bowler. And I think one thing that we come back to, and we spoke about this when we when we spoke about the greatest batsman is longevity, and it, it, and and you know that's the challenge for a fast bowler if they are having to continue to adapt 
to actually survive across a period of five, 10, 15 years in some cases, that's when you really separate, you know, just the, the great players from maybe the merely good or very good. Um, and, 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 you know, that's why a number of the guys we've been speaking about today have probably got a better claim um, to being the greatest because they've done it over a longer period of time. We've touched on briefly, Malenga will probably go into a bit more depth on what's made him so effective. But um, Dwayne Bravo is another one who, you know, who's still been... You know, He's maybe past his best now, and he's only on the decline. But he's performed at the highest level for for ten plus years. Um, and what's what's really interesting about Bravo, um, I think a lot of the guys we've spoken about today have had have been uh, their top speed ball has been pretty quick. So if you've got a lot of variations, um, and and you can reach you know 140, 145, 150 kph, I think that gives you quite a, you know quite a few more options. Bravo hasn't always had that. I think he probably used to be able to be pretty nippy. Um, but but nowadays he doesn't, and that means you've really got to rely on, um, I suppose, hiding your variations on mystery and on the quality of those slower balls. And, and Bravo is someone who has done that across a long period of time. I don't think Bravo's um, raw numbers are, are or I don't think Bravo's maybe as great as many people think he is. I think he picks up a hell of a lot of wickets at the back end of the innings when they're often a little bit cheaper. Um, but he has his versus or his um, longevity rather across a long period of time can only really be rivaled by Malinga. And I think because of that, he's got to be in the discussion for this. I mean, he's, his slower balls have been among the very best. That sort of dipping slower ball that he had. He had one where I think he kind of undercut it um, and it sort of dropped on batsman. Malinga did a similar thing. Um, but yeah, Bravo's got to be in the discussion just for the fact that he's performed across such a long period of time all around the world, international level. Um, and in the IPL, he's been you know, a key player at Mumbai and, then, and now obviously at Chennai. Yeah, absolutely. Link to that. Something that we talked about in episode one was how batting has changed over the course of T20's history. And this is a question for both of you. Do you think uh, what's been required of pace bowling has changed since the early days? Have the essentials changed or has it been a bit more straightforward compared to batting? Uh, I think you're, you're a little bit more limited, aren't you? As a bowler, you can only bowl in a straight line and with a, with a, if, if that makes sense, you're very limited to what you can do. Whereas a batsman can literally hit the ball 360 degrees with different angles of his bat, different parts of his bat, front foot, back foot, high, low. So yeah, bowling is a bit more limited. Um, and as such, you can, you can say it's a bit more difficult. So um, I, I, I personally, I'm you know, a big believer in, in the basics. As I've said, especially if you have pace, if you can bowl that heavy length on the top of the stumps, at a good pace. And, and if you can get movement, that's the, the, again, the thing that we keep going back to. If you're a, if you can bowl fast and swing the ball, it's difficult no matter where you are. Uh, but if you can't, you know, myself, I'm not a huge swinger of the ball, so I have to be a bit more accurate and rely on pace and, and bounce and seam movement um, to try and get my wickets or at least make the batsman uncomfortable and reduce runs. Um, then you go about it that way. But um, obviously, you start to see more variations. The knuckleball really came in a, a few years ago, didn't it? Um, you know, AJ Ty, probably the, the best exponent of that. But then you'd argue now that a lot of, a lot more guys are, are picking that ball, and it's, it's it's not as effective. You know, as I say, batsmen are it's not taking long for for batsmen to figure something out. And and I would say the rate that batsmen are getting better is probably uh, quicker than what bowlers are. So bowlers are having to often change, even if it's, as I said, going back to maybe something that you did do two years ago. That's almost like a new delivery now because you're not bowling it as regularly at the moment. If that makes sense. 
Well, I mean, it's interesting. Analysts often talk about data sort of, you know, from maybe more than two or three years ago, almost being redundant. And it's almost like, you know, you have a life cycle whereby um, analysts and people stop analysing stuff older than that. So then you can start bringing it back again. Exactly. So to speak. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in terms of how, how, how bowling has changed, I think what's changed is it's become harder. I think batsmen have got better. Um, as you said, I agree completely with what you're saying. But batsmen have got better, I think, at a faster rate. That's largely because of the nature of batting. If I'm a batsman, I can go and set up a bowling machine to bowl me 200 Yorkers and nail them for three hours. Whereas if I'm a bowler, if I bowl, well, you know, if, if I had any kind of injury issues, no one's going to be advising me to go and bowl for, for, for three hours straight because it's going to cause me problems. So I think just on a basic physicality level, batsmen are always at an advantage or have been at an advantage because they can train for longer. Um, and I think what we've seen is, is over the last 10 to 15 years, batsmen become more destructive, more powerful. They've scored 360 degrees and it's made the job for bowlers more difficult. Um, I think um, I, I spoke to Jay Dernbach for, for my book and he, he said he gave a great quote, which was, you know, you can bowl six perfect balls now and they can all go to the boundary. You know, you, you, it's like that's how good batsmen have got, that you can execute your skill perfectly with the field that you've set and you can still be punished. Um, and I think that illustrates how hard a job fast bowling is. And that's probably something we should underline here, you know, when we're talking about fast bowling more generally, as I think it's arguably the toughest job in T20 cricket. Um, you're asked to bowl in the power play and at the death when the field is up and there's only two men out and when the batsmen are going hard and then at the back end when they're trying to just clear the fences. So it's a hugely difficult job. Um, and that's maybe why I think when we, when we um, sat down to do the greatest batsman list, I found it a little bit easier to start writing the five or six names that stood out. And they were the guys that we spoke about at the time, Gail, De Villiers, Russell, Pollard, Warner, Coley. Um, whereas for this one, the list is a bit more sprawling. There's a few guys who are obvious, um, Malinga, Wahab, Stain. Um, and then there are guys coming through now like Bumra, um, Shaheen Afridi, for example, Jofra Archer. These are guys who dominate now, but the, the list is more sprawling. There are guys, you know, even like Sohel Tanvir, for example, James Faulkner. These guys were fantastic back in the day, but haven't quite managed to sort of sustain a career like, say, Chris Gale, because I think the onus on bowlers to evolve and to adapt as we've spoken about, is, is massive, and that makes it very hard to succeed across a long period of time. So, other than uh, Shaheen and Archer, who do you think will be in this, in this very conversation in 10 years' time? Oh, good good question, obviously. But the thing is, with T20 cricket, they could literally, literally somebody could appear in three years' time, and within the space of 18 months, they could be the best bowler in the world, such as the the exposure that's available, um, the amount of leagues that are you know, available, a, a, a bowler could appear next year, play their debut tournament somewhere, do really well, then get picked up in every draft auction around the world for 12 months and all of a sudden be the best player. Do you know what I mean? So it's, um, it's such a fast-moving fast uh, world is, is T20 cricket, as we all know. I think um, if you look at in England, uh, Pat Brown obviously has done very well in, in English domestic cricket. He started to get some opportunities this winter, didn't he? Obviously he had a a big bash gig that he wasn't able to fulfil for getting injured. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he does once he starts playing uh, abroad. I've spoken to him a little bit. He he loves T20 cricket. I remember after straight after Worcester beat us in the blast final a couple of years ago, he came and, and collared myself, uh, Joffre and, and Chris Jordan, and just just asked us about just asked us about bowling and about T20 cricket and about franchise cricket. And so he's obviously very switched on in that regard, which is, which is awesome to see. It's really nice for us guys. You know, he's, he's only a few years, well, a few years younger than, than me. Um, CJ is a little bit older than, than Joffre and I, but um, 
so I think one to watch out for is definitely him. Um, be interesting to see guys, you know, like Nassim Shah. He's you know, 16, 17. That is very young. Um, he may get wrapped up in, you know, in Cottonwood a little bit to, to play test cricket because he's obviously in, in the Pakistan test team and he's a very talented young boy. Um, obviously, I played with him in, in the Quetta Gladiators just now and they are very protective of him and rightly so because he really is a special talent. He's, he's quick, he swings the ball, um, he's got good skills. Uh, Mohammed Hasnain as well, another guy I played with. He's a decent pace of having Quetta, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, well, we went all right. We had a, we had a few Ks on us, but some of those pitches out in Pakistan, it didn't matter how uh, how quick you bowled, you you went the distance. It was it was tough. So um, but Hasnain, he's again a young guy. He bowls quick. He's you know he's he's more expensive, but he he takes wickets. He's a pure wicket taker. He's like those guys, like you said, like we're having international cricket. You'll often see him taking what a four for fifty and a four you know four over spell, which it gives you a bit of bit of all sorts. Um, yeah, it's so tough. And as I say, to, to narrow it down with the, with the amount of exposure and the amount of leagues that just churn out, you, you, you can never predict what's going to happen in, in a 12-month cycle. Somebody, as I said, literally could appear from nowhere and, and be the best bowler in the world 12 months later. It's quite interesting. We yeah, mentioned I mean, a lot of people from Pakistan today. Um, they, they produce 20 fast bowlers almost like no other country. Tomorrow you spent some time out there. What, what do you think it is about Pakistan that uh, make, makes them so good at producing excellent teacher bowlers. Yeah, like you shake a tree and you know left arm fast bowler falls out. Isn't it? There's so many there's so many fast bowlers. I we've maybe spoken to it about it a bit more because obviously it's the league I've played the most in outside of England. I've played four years of of the PSL so I know the league well. I know the people well. I've got a lot of experience of it. Um I've played obviously a bit of big bash. Uh, bowler uh, Jai Richardson, I think he's very good. He's again he's that he swings that new ball. He bowls good pace and he bowls Yorkers. So he's um, he's another bowler. But um, yeah, I think Pakistanis. I did. I mentioned it earlier when we were speaking about Amir and, and Riaz. You, you have to to put that balance between bat and ball into into the conversation um, because it, it, it is heavily kind of weighted towards the the bowlers. The domestic batters aren't aren't at, at the same level. You'll often find in in the PSL your four overseas slots will just be. Numbers one, two, three, and four in the batting in the batting order. Teams will just just stack their their overseas with batters, um, but you know. So you could argue, and obviously they don't play in the IPL either, which is obviously the probably the biggest test for a bowler is to go to the IPL and really do well. So you don't get the the um, the benefit of that information. But yeah, guys, just they just bowl quick out there, and you have to bowl quick because as I said the pitches out there, especially in um, Rawalpindi and places like that, where the, it's just small boundaries and flat pitches if if you're a 75 80 mile an hour bowler who doesn't have impeccable accuracy you're you're not going to last very long i mean it's a good point you talk there about i think historically the psl has been loaded in towards bowlers slightly for the reasons you say there's a strong domestic talent pool and also the first few seasons were played in the uae where the pitches were tougher now it's as you said it's moved back to pakistan it'll be interesting to see which of those guys survive given the fact that the boundaries are tiny and the pitches are so flat um, it will be a good test of those guys. And, and yeah, I completely concur with what you say about the IPL. You know, it would be brilliant if the Pakistanis were able to play in that and sort of be tested in that league. Um, but, I mean, the PSL is a really high-standard comp and, and, they, do, and, and you know, they, they do they do well there. Um, it is just a sort of a, a fast-bowling factory out there in Pakistan and, and it's amazing to see the guys coming through. And I think um, Shaheen Sharafridi, who I mentioned, is, is probably, for me, um, possibly the most exciting fast-bowler in the world right now. Um, in all formats, but in T20, he's amazing. We spoke about Stark being an attacking bowler who pitches the ball up early on. That's exactly what Shaheen does. 
Um, Lahore this, this season in the PSL didn't have that strong a side, but basically they rode through and got through to the qualifiers thanks basically to performances from a couple of individuals with the bat, Chris Lynn and Ben Dunk turned up a couple of times, but Shaheen with the ball, um, power play wickets, as I said, are super valuable and he would just go hunting for them. You know, he's got no fear. He's going to pitch it up. Um, he might get driven for four a couple of times, uh, but he'll also take a couple of wickets. And he, 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 for him, that works out in his favour. And, and it's, it's a really good attitude, I think, for a fast bowl to have. I'd love to see more, more quicks who can swing the ball like him, um, get it up there. I mean, another name we've got to mention, and we, have, we did mention him briefly, but Bumra. Um, you know, I, I think we can't quite put Bumra as, you know, I don't think it would be fair to call Bumra the greatest T20 bowler ever yet. Um, but he's been performing now for three or four years as probably the, one of the best, if not the best, um, to, to, to win the title of the greatest. As I said, I think you've got to do it across perhaps a long period of time. Um, but at Mumbai Indians, Bumrah and Malinga, I mean, that is a serious combination of bowlers. And what's so interesting about them, and I think we should probably talk a bit about Malinga and what's made him so good. Um, but just to finish on Bumrah before we do, they have very, very different methods. Bumrah has this super high arm action. He sort of gets out really high, wide on the crease and spears it in. Um, uh, whereas Malinga, obviously, with his like that historic low arm slinging action is completely different. But what they both do is the same and, and that they absolutely nail their Yorkers. Um, we spoke about, um, you know, I mentioned earlier how Yorkers are high, high risk and high reward because um, if you do get it wrong, you get punished. With Malinga and with Bumrah, they don't really miss. Um, it's, it's the most effective ball in the game and they get it right more often than anyone else and that's why they're, you know, uh, I think Malinga is, 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 is right up there as, as one of the greatest, if not the greatest um, and, and Bumrah is very much his apprentice at Mumbai. If you're a batting team, having to come up against those two, I don't envy you. How, how important is it bowling in partnerships? So, obviously there, that, that must benefit both Bumrah and Malinga having somebody at the other end who bowls the complete opposite style to you. Uh, Tomorrow, does, is that something that you think about much in T20 cricket or, or not as much compared to other formats? <laughs> it's difficult. T, T, T20 cricket, and in particular, it, it can be a very selfish place. Everybody can be there for themselves. They're there to get a, get a contract for next year or for the next draft. And you kind of, you know, you could be in a situation where you don't really care if your team wins or loses, but you, um, you know, as long as you, if you walk off for three for 20, then you're not that bothered. But the best and the most successful teams, they, they, they create that culture and you do generally you know, care about your team and helping each other. I know that one of my big things when I was at Quetta this year was trying to help Nassim Shah and Hasnain as much as possible. We, you know, we were often the, the three paces in, in the team, so I'd, I'd do my best to try and help those guys out. And, and it's, it's kind of your duty, I think, as an overseas player, when you go to these foreign, foreign places to, to, to try and do do something a little bit more than than what you do on on the pitch. That's that's how I go about it. And um, let's go back to your to your question. I think if you can, it, one at Sussex, it's, we're very lucky. We have got an excellent group of, but you know our bowling attack is our strength. It's, you know we hang our hat on our bowling attack. If our bats if our batters can get us one forty one fifty, we'll go out there as a bowling attack and and back ourselves to defend it. Um, so if if you have that type of feeling between your fast bowlers and, and your spinners, because obviously everybody works in, in tandem, backed up by, by your fielders. It's, it's a really powerful thing. And um, you, know, you speak about trying to f- finish off your over, not just for your over, but then for the start of your mate's over. Because if, if your last two balls for your, of your over have gone for, for four and for six, that then, <coughs> excuse me, that then shifts the momentum for the start of the next over. And your mates 
immediately under pressure. Whereas if you can close out, if you bowl a really good over in the power play, only goes for two or three runs. Or one, you, the bowler bowling the next over needs to be ready that the batsmen are probably going to be coming at him because they need to, they're catching they're behind the eight ball. They need to catch up. But that then brings that risk and that variance and that chance of getting a wicket probably goes up in that next over after a quiet over in the first one. Again, the stats might back that up. I, I, I don't know. But um, you definitely need to work as a partnership all throughout the innings, but then split that up into little two, three block phases and, and try and help your mate out as much as you can, especially when it comes to the death. <laughs> Whoever's bowling that 20th over, you'll often find your, the best bowler will bowl the 19th over in a, when you're defending a, a, a chase because you need to leave that last over as much leeway as possible. So we need to, we need to decide who the greatest T20 bowler of all time is. Who are you guys going to pick? Well, I'm 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 going to go for Malinga. Um, I think um, you know we talked briefly about it there. His effectiveness, essentially at T20's best or most effective delivery, the Yorker is is second to none. Um, and that's that comes from the action that he's got, that unique action, that low arm um, allows him to, to to bowl the Yorker more effectively than than anyone else. And and, and that's something that we, we can back up with stats. Actually, um, Malinga's Yorkers are York, uh, sort of attempted. Yorker, sorry, success rate with his Yorker is 63%. If he's trying to bowl a Yorker, he, he, he'll get it right 63% of the time, which is the best of any bowler ever to play T20. And then not only that, though, if he misses his Yorker, and I spoke about this earlier, how it's such a high-risk delivery, if he misses his Yorker and say, say he bowls a full toss, traditionally full tosses go around 10, 11 runs and over. Malingas go at seven and a half. And that's partly because of the fact that that low action um, makes it particularly difficult to pick up. And you've seen that before. With the, he has that sort of ability sometimes to cut under the ball, a bit like Bravo I spoke about, and bowl that sort of dipping slower ball. That happens as well. So even when he misses his Yorker in terms of the length, um, he's still very hard to get away. Um, and then not only does that make him an effective Yorker bowler, but that low arm action also makes his bounces very effective. So in T20, obviously, you're only allowed um, a, a certain number of bounces per over. But Mal- and, and Malinga, what he does so effectively is because he's got that low arm release, he manages to keep it at sort of like neck, upper chest height and therefore not being called for a bouncer for the over um, because he's able to sort of skid it off a lot of that low release. So his action is, is sort of almost perfect for T20 bowling. The Yorker and the bouncer are probably the two uh, most effective deliveries, um, both in terms of run saving and wicket taking. Um, and he's better than anyone at that. Um, he's done it across a, few, you know, a very long period of time now. I think two or three years ago, people thought maybe he was finished. Um, he'd lost a bit of his pace. But what he's bought um, is just a huge amount of experience. And that, you've been playing around the world um, for years and years, it meant, it has meant that he sort of, um, yeah, he, he can read tales in batsmen. I remember last year um, in the IPL, Russell got after him in a game, uh, I think at Eden Gardens. In the next game, Malinga adapted and he went round the wicket, basically came up with an entirely new plan that he'd never done before in T23. He'd never bowled round the wicket to a right-hander. And he did it, and he did it effectively, and he carried on doing it for the rest of the season. And, and that shows, I think, that that you know, when you play across a long period of time, you can learn these tricks. Um, and he's you know he played a key role at Mumbai, who we obviously last week identified as the greatest T20 side. Um, he's taken Sri Lanka to the World Cup final and to a World Cup win. Um, so for me, I can't look beyond Malinga. Tomorrow? Yeah, look, I'd, I'd agree. Freddie's uh, said said most of it there. I, I think it is the. It's the longevity. You think what a brilliant career he's had over a, a long period of time. He's done it at. You know, consistently at the biggest events, the highest level. So again, the IPL, the World Cups, the Big Bash with the Melbourne Stars, he was consistently excellent for. Um, and yeah, I think it's just it's, it's the hardest skill in the game is the Yorker. You ask, you know, we 
we speak about it a lot. What's the hardest ball to bowl? It's a Yorker. So if you could be the, you know, the best Yorker bowler in the world consistently, you're the best player in the world, aren't you? Really, as if you're just looking at it in, in terms of simple facts, that's that would be um, that would be where I came down on it. Um, as I said, but I think you know, maybe as a caveat to that, if if I was picking a you know a T20 team right now, and who would my number one fast bowler be to play tomorrow? I would probably say Jasper Bumrah. I'd say he's he's on that that trajectory. I think he's an outstanding bowler at, at all three phases of the game. Obviously, the two most important: the start, at the end. He's 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 excellent. Um, I had the the displeasure of facing two balls from him at that, on that England tour in India. First ball almost took my face off, and then second ball I, I gladly uh, nicked to Virat Kohli at, at first slip. So. Um, <laughs> So hopefully those will be the last two balls I face for him. But he's got that express pace. You know, he's he's 90 mile an hour plus. He's got that awkward action, awkward run up, and he blows your you know your stumps out of the ground or, or your or the or your shoes out of your boots. So um, yeah, I I'll, I'll settle. I'll be happy to agree with Malinga as the best of all time. But maybe Jasper Brummer is on on that trajectory for if we have this conversation in 10 years to to maybe um, eclipse that. I think it's really interesting as well that we pick Malinga with him what. Boomer is his potential heir, that they have two of the most unorthodox actions out there in international cricket. And I wonder if that is another trend that we'll see in years to come, just coaches encouraging unorthodoxy as much as anything else. Well, I mean, we, we spoke about one of the reasons why left arms are effective is the fact that it was just unusual to face. You know, that, that's taken to a new extreme by Malinga. Um, not, you know, you might face, as, as Tamar said, you might face 10%, 20% left armers when you're a kid. You're never, ever going to face Lassus <laughs> Malinga until you face him in international or, you know, in the IPL. And, and I think, or Boomer. And, you know, and I think, you know, and also as well, just I, I touched on it earlier, the fact that they come with both very unique but very different actions as well is really nice. And I think that's um, probably from a sort of coaching standpoint. If there are young kids who can do things that are unusual, they should be encouraged to go with that. Um, because you know you can see, as we just said, the two best bowlers in the world are, are bowlers who have coaching uh, actions that are not in the coaching manual. Um, Tomorrow, this has been mine and Freddie's lockdown project in a way. You've got involved in one yourself. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the Pace Journal? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it's something that I've got involved with at the start of this year when I was when I was out in the PSL. Uh, Shabazz, who, who runs the account, got in, in touch with me, and I actually fo- I followed the account last year just. You know, kind of on my own accord. I saw the account. I liked what they were putting out there. I, I followed it, and I enjoyed listening to what other bowlers had to say. And then um, you know, they were looking for they were looking for a professional, kind of a, you know someone with the, the credibility. And and uh, I've I've got the free time as well to offer the uh, the channel. <laughs> um, I'm not struggling for free time. And obviously, I you know I, I do a lot of media work, and I'm I'm that way inclined in terms of presenting and doing commentary. And it's um, it's an interest of mine. So. Um, it was an interesting package to kind of come on board with, with with something, and obviously the lockdown period has given me a tremendous amount of, of time to really dive into it and learn what goes on kind of behind it. An account is is a lot more than you know a man on on his phone just making an Instagram account. There's, there's a lot more to it in terms of strategy and content and all these different things. So it's been it's been interesting for me to learn. Um, and in terms, we're now starting to you know if you, if you follow the account over the last couple of months, we haven't actually done what. We've, we've said we do because we've had quite a few announcements with the the new batting channel called Shots Journal, which we've just launched, and then um, obviously the bowling channel. So we've got a new series with with Saqib Mahmood where we we dive into we learn a bit about, bit about him and then talk to him about his cricket and, and all sorts. And what we do is we chop it up into 
kind of little segments because you know a lot of guys won't listen to podcasts like this which have gone on for <laughs> what an, an hour an hour and 10 minutes um you know obviously some 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 guys out there will love that but a lot of guys they'll want that chopped up won't they so we chop it all up into into little segments um and hopefully if you, if you watch you know cover the channel over a, a decent period of time you will find something that you can take into your game um we, we did a really the, the podcast we've done with chris lynn which is which is starting on monday is is really good for all batsmen out there. I I won't be giving any batting tips. Don't don't worry. I won't, there won't be a feature out there from me. Um, but yeah, then once kind of this COVID situation settled down, we've got some more plans to to expand even further um, to to really bring some exciting content. So um, it's been really exciting for me, and um, yeah, it's given me something something productive to do with my time during lockdown. Oh, fantastic! Well, thanks so much for joining us today. That was really interesting. Yeah, thanks, guys. Good to speak to you. This has been the third episode of Wisdom and Quick Business podcast series, The Greatest T20. If you've enjoyed the show, tell your friends. And if you're feeling extra kind, why not leave us a five-star review on the podcast app? Cheers. Podcast Network.